Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit one week at a time. Hello, and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. William Adams, uh, Associate Professor of Psychology at Duquesne University, and we're talking about his book, A Wild and Sacred Call, Nature, Psyche, Spirit, part of the uh, State University of New York Transpersonal and Humanistic Psychology Series. Uh, Dr. Adams, Will, glad to have you on today. Hey there, PJ. I, I really appreciate the invitation to, to talk about these matters that I think are really crucial for our world today. So, uh, yeah, and I'm glad you call me Will. That's that's what I go by. <laughs> I they uh, enforce. I used to teach high school, and they enforced me being called Mister Weary, and I just never felt comfortable for with it. And so, I, I appreciate that impulse. Um, uh, definitely, I've always just gone by PJ. It just seems to fit me better. But as we look at your book, uh, Wild and Sacred Call, um, why this book? I mean, <laughs> like anything about climate change does have that uh, house on fire. You know, you, you quote the Greta Thunberg uh, line, uh, has that house on fire quality. But uh, why this book and why is it um, your answer and your project in regards to the current climate crisis? Yes. Yeah, so... I see the climate crisis as as a symptom of a bigger problem, and it it seems like to me that that our uh, confused uh, and 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 violent and um, anguished relationship with the rest of nature um, is is really the the core issue of our era, the core ethical calling of our era and to create create a, a mutually enhancing relationship between us and the rest of nature um i think that that's really the the, the calling the ethical calling um a wild and sacred call uh you know which is the title of my book and so my book was my best scholarly response to that call that crucial call of our era I did want to ask you, and you mentioned this is, seems to be, if I understood correctly, part of the whole Department of Psychology at Duquesne, that you are comfortable integrating uh, philosophy, especially continental philosophy, into uh, a lot of your work. Um, can you talk a little bit about the research and methodology used for this book? Because it is unusual, at least by most academic standards. Yes. Well, I'm very privileged to to teach at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, we have a really radical alternative progressive psychology program, um, and we just had our 60th uh, anniversary celebration back in the spring. Um, and in a field psychology, which I have great respect for, but I also can critique, you know, a field that, uh, like many today, are is um, you know tends to be rather conservative and wanting to have um, certain traditions um, um, upheld, which I appreciate. Uh, to have an alternative program that has flourished for sixty years is is quite an accomplishment. And I, by alternative, I mean we're grounded in uh, really thinking through the foundations of what it means to be human and to be human with others, including to be human with others uh, that are, are, are of the natural world, uh, the more than human natural world. Um, uh, like what are the ontological and epistemological and ethical foundations um, that we need to be tuned into to craft a psychology that um, can serve folks well, both in in research and in theory and in psychotherapy. We have a, 
a PhD program in clinical psychology, and I've practiced therapy for a long time. Um, so um, grounded in existentialism and phenomenology and hermeneutics and post-structuralism and uh, continental philosophy, uh, um, and it's a program that allows me to bring in um, the psychological or psychospiritual sensibilities of the great spiritual traditions. Buddhism and, and Christianity are the two that I know the best. Um, I bring in some other things in the book, but those are the two that I know I know the best and I work with more closely. So that's a long prelude to say what was my me uh, method and methodology for, 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 for crafting the book. Um, my primary methodology, uh, methodology to me means the logos of the method, kind of the theory of the method, and the, the method itself is more procedural, okay? So the, the logos of the method for me was how do I write a book that doesn't simply talk about our relations with the rest of nature, but, but somehow creates the, the conditions um, by way of a text, creates the experiential conditions for uh, seeing that relationship more deeply and, and transforming that relationship for human well-being and for the well-being of the rest of nature. So that was the core methodological uh, orientation. Um, uh, it wasn't, I, w I wasn't trying to like just represent ideas. I was trying to present things in a fresh way that might sponsor, uh, you know, real transformation. Um, and I work phenomenologically. So, um, I, I, I try to keep returning to actual tangible lived experience. Now in our relations, our troubled relations with, with the rest of nature, I don't think phenomenology is enough. We need systemic, sociocultural transformation, economic, political, uh, uh, religious, um, social transformation, systemic transformation. But, but that transformation, I think, still is grounded in people's lived experience. If you don't have direct lived experiential contact with conscious contact with the rest of nature, uh, then you're not going to have any motivation to sponsor new laws or economic policies or whatever. Okay, So I, I, I ground my work in phenomenology, which has to do with a careful attunement uh, to understanding and unfolding lived experience. So the book is filled with stories from everyday life, some from my own life, some from other people's lives, uh, people that I know, people that I've met. It's also filled with poetry because I think poets are the uh, <laughs> exemplary uh, masters of, of articulating lived experience. Um, and it's, it's set into dialogue with uh, key um, spiritual and philosophical ideas and psychological ideas that I find very, uh, very crucial in our relations with the rest of nature. So that, that kind of orients you and maybe orients the listeners to where the book is coming from. Even as you talked about what's important to uh, the Duquesne Department of Psychology, uh, and you, you mentioned like this uh, approaching psychology as what does it mean to be human? I mean, I think that's in large part what drew me to your book, right? Like when you talk about, uh, I have a big questions podcast and there, are, uh, you could argue there are other big questions or bigger questions, but definitely <laughs> what does it mean to be human is, is one of those big questions. So again, thank you for coming on today. I'm very, um, I'm really excited to talk through all this. Uh, and even to say, what does it mean to be human is, is a little bit abstract. I'm really interested in what does it mean to live well, to love well. That's, mm. that's really what I'm interested in. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I, that's, you, you kind of end with uh, the nature. Um, love is our nature. Love is our calling. Love is our path. Love is our fruition. And you, you mentioned the, uh, you referenced Christianity and that there's this idea of perfection which in a, a Cartesian world, in a, in, in a technologically 
boxed in world uh, has kind of this mathematical concept to it. But I was drawn to the idea of uh, when in scripture, when they're talking about perfection, they're talking about completion. And it's often in, in a very natural way, talking about in terms of trees and harvest. And uh, if, if your tree bears a lot of good fruit, it is perfect. It has, it is matured. And so this idea of fruition of, of maturity, um, I, th- I have always found, you know, uh, connected with this idea of human flourishing. I think these are healthier ways for our society to go. And so, um, that I, I, some of this is me <laughs> making sure I'm tracking with you, but also it's, it, I'm, I'm both geeking out a little bit. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> No, it's great. Share whatever ideas come to mind. I mean, really, that's that's what a real conversation is. You know, we spark each other. Uh, yeah. So please share whatever comes to mind, and we'll go back and forth. Yeah. I and I, you know, the temptation when you when you say a wild and sacred call, nature, psyche, spirit, is to say, well, what do you mean by nature? And I'll kind of ask that, but I'm going to ask that knowing <laughs> your responses. To avoid uh, this hard and fast definition, you know, even as you have that whole section on powerfully uh, charged words, um, but I, to maybe if you could orient or uh, one of the words that came to me as I was reading what you were writing, uh, you could inspire our audience um, with how you use words like nature and psyche and spirit. <laughs> You do go for the big questions, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, the subtitle of the book is Nature hyphen psyche hyphen spirit. And the hyphens are really important because I think each of these dimensions are uh, different sides of one another. They're they're interwoven. They're, 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 they're an integral unity, really, a dynamic one. Um, and that's in contrast to the core malady of our era, seeing humans and the rest of nature being separate. And we can circle back to this. Because um, in, a, in a way, that's what the book is about and uh, is aspiring to create conditions for us to overcome that delusion that we're really separate from, elevated above, and entitled to exploit the rest of nature. Okay. But what do I mean by nature? (laughs) Um, In the midst of writing the book, I came across uh, a book, and I can't remember the guy that wrote it, but it was like key words in the English language. And and he said, you know, nature is perhaps the most uh, mysterious and complex word in the whole English language. Um, and so in the, in the introduction, I do take some time to go into uh, detailed um, uh, variations of this, of this core word that's pointing to a core experience. Um, off the top of my head, I probably can't even remember all of them because there's probably eight or ten of them that I list. Um, but let me just name two that I think are important. Um, two or three. Uh, partly, I'm referring to the more than human or the mm-hmm. other than human natural world. More than human natural world is a beautiful mm-hmm. phrase from David Abram, the eco-philosopher. Uh, who's been a great inspiration uh, and ally uh, for me. Um, So I'm partly referring to non-human nature. Uh, And I often say the rest of nature, because we humans are nature. We're we're an expression of, a manifestation of of nature. Um, But... I think one of the core things that we need to do these days is is to become conscious of our relationship with the rest of nature and thereby foster more uh, you know compassionate, healthy, life enhancing relations rather than alienated, anguished, exploitive relations, um, destructive relations. Um, so partly I'm meaning the, the the more than human natural world. 
Um, I am meaning us humans inseparably. Okay. Um, another way that I use nature is uh, more akin to the um, uh, philosophical and spiritual sense of the the whole of all that is the all inclusive, all permeating life itself. Not just biological life, but but uh, this this whole great life um, that goes by this whole great unnameable mystery that goes by many names, right? That it could be called. I mean, even to say it is bizarre because it's not an it, but but this this whole great mystery could be called um, life or reality or the universe or cosmos mm-hmm. or uh, being. Uh, and if you want to turn to spiritual traditions, perhaps you know God or the Tao. Um, um, I, there are ways that that what I'm calling nature shows itself and and um uh that to me is thoroughly congruent with these uh uh, classic sort of time-honored spiritual names for the unnameable mystery as you were talking about the humans being separate but we're really not right like we shouldn't be um remember the first time and it was such an eye-opening experience and uh it was from the movie um ghost in the shell i don't know if you're familiar with it but um they, i don't know that one huh the uh it might have been the second one or the first i can't remember like there, there's like a whole series and but uh the two characters are talking looking out over the city and one of the characters says the other and i, I believe she compared it to a termite mound she said you know we under we understand that a termite mound is an expression of the termites dna um, but we don't look around at the city and recognize that, you know, like really these are artifacts of our DNA like that, you know, because we see ourselves as separate or as a part, we don't recognize that even the cities and the technology is that that grows out are expressions of, of what it means to be human. And uh, that was really eye opening because, you know, I, there's always been nature and technology, especially, you know, growing up in like kind of a, a modernist worldview. Um, and I think I'm was right on the cusp of where that started has started transition but this idea of like the the separateness from nature and instead seeing like i mean the metals we take uh, they're still the earth's metals even if we arrange them differently and so it's still all part of the um this entirety this reality that's exactly right uh, in- including we ourselves uh, right. And including our DNA, I think our DNA is actually an artifact of of that great mystery. You know, not that the stuff that builds up is an artifact of our DNA. I think it goes the other way around. Um, that, that 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 our DNA and our and our embodied life and our and our and our culture are not artifacts, but but uh, but like you know, manifestations, emanations of this great life this great seamless life that we share uh but we act as if we're separate we think as if we're separate we imagine that our well-being can be independent of the well-being of the rest of nature and this creates a really paranoid and greedy approach to the world and i'm not i'm not saying we're not different from the rest of nature i mean you and i are different you know i'm different from my dog laying here next to me uh I, you know i'm different from the rhododendron bush but it's you know seen through a sensitive eye you might even say a contemplative eye it's very clear we're not separate we're not separate and that separation creates fear you know and defensiveness and you know and then greed and exploitation so that's the core delusion of humankind i think uh that lack of recognition even the um uh, and this is, I think, speaks to something I appreciate about your book, uh, as you talk about climate, the climate crisis only being a symptom of a deeper root issue. Uh, and that's why, if I understand you correctly, your goal is transformation, not information. This book isn't supposed to be about 
the climate crisis because uh, it's not about us being able to control or change the world around us. It is about, first and foremost, the call, the, the need for our own transformation. Is that a fair way to art- articulate, at least in one aspect? Yeah, I think that's a sensitive reading. Yeah, that, that's that's really it. I mean, there's there's plenty of facts. There's plenty of information out there, and information's important uh, as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. Uh, and you know, at best, the information can 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 deepen, you know, deepen into real understanding, to wisdom, to transformation um, that comes to its fruition in in engaged, caring, compassionate action. Yeah. And I, I think it would be unfair, as you've talked so much about lived experience, not to at least uh, dig into a, a few of the stories you, re- you relate. And there's that first really beautiful one uh, about your son, Eli, seeing the deer and claiming, you know, it's it's uh, falling from heaven. It's jumping from heaven. Um, can yeah. you talk a little bit about how that fits into the scheme of things and how that inspired and uh, helped you? You, know, you talk about poetry as phenomenological data um and obviously you want to stay away from just like the idea that it's just an info dump but what what can you speak to how you interpret that story in a way that um enriches your soul yeah first of all it was just such a you know such a beautiful experience i mean i start i start the, the 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 book um uh with a photograph of Eli when he was about two and a half uh looking out a big picture window in our previous home um and right on the other side of the picture window uh is a white tail deer fawn uh and I walked into my it was in my study um and I walked in and snapped a photograph really quick and because it was just so beautiful it was like two toddlers enraptured by each other, fascinated by each other, right? Um, and then as I was writing the book, um, I, I was a- aware that there's, a, there's a, uh, a real anguishing circumstance in our world today that if kids are having less and less aware contact with the rest of nature, you know, Richard Louvre, the journalist, coined this term nature deficit disorder, which I think is a powerful um, term and even more powerful uh, malady. Um, And so I knew that Eli had that intimate encounter with that deer and that my wife Holly and I tried to help our kids be aware and tuned into the natural world, uh, you know, in the midst of a technologically dominated world. Sometimes we did better and sometimes not so well. Uh, uh, But (laughs) then when, uh, yeah, when he was about, uh, I don't know, I'd have to just guess. I can't, I could count it back. But, you know, maybe he was 10 or so. Um, We were driving uh, away from our home uh, uh, at a different place. We live in the woods now. And uh, he saw this white-tailed deer, an adult, uh, bounding over a log, and he says, "Ah, oh, Dad, Dad, that that deer was like 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 falling from heaven." And I was just struck by that, the awe that he felt, and 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 also the phrase because. Uh, our family is quite spiritual, but we don't really talk about heaven that much. Uh, I mean, maybe hardly at all. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I mean, maybe we, uh, as they got older, I celebrated my sense that, you know, heaven, like 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 the, the gospel say, the, the kingdom of heaven is among us. The kingdom of heaven is within us or, you know. Um, uh, the, the quote I give in the book, all, all the way to heaven is heaven, right? Um, so for him, for him to actually see the, the, the heavenly, the sort of sacred dimension of that deer gracefully bounding over that log, I thought, that, that's it. That's really it. And um, if, if indeed we could see 
that spontaneously, not because someone is telling us to see the world that way, not because the Ten Commandments or the Buddhist precepts, some sort of external code you know, tells us that we should see the world that way. But if we really saw the world spontaneously like that, then, then we don't have mass extinction of species. Then we don't have mountain range annihilation mining, which I talk about later in the book. Then we don't have, um, you know, all the exploitation and uh, excessive, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, burning of fossil fuels. We don't have global warming. Uh, no, spontaneously, spontaneously, we re relate with care. And, and compassion, um, yeah, that 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 holy, that sacred dimension is just completely evident. Not because someone has to tell you that. Um, and late 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 in the book, I I, I I cite that beautiful poem from Wendell Berry, where he says something like, um, uh, "There are no." unsacred places, there are only sacred places and desecrated places. And I think we desecrate nature because of our confused views grounded in that fantasy of separation. So Eli wasn't separate. He was deeply, just spontaneously attuned to that glorious event. Yeah, and I think uh, my first response is, oh, what an incredible example of childlike wonder. But what I appreciate is you didn't use the word wonder, you used the word awe, which captures that spiritual, that sacred dimension to it. That um, I do think, uh, you know, obviously human beings, I think, have uh, their own capacity to develop, uh, I'll say, evil or to develop sin, you know, if you, to use theological language. Um, but there is, it is astonishing how much is trained in us, right? When you, when you talk about how much is trained or trained out of us in this case, that this loss of insight, this loss of wonder, um, I think of my own kids and, uh, the joy they take even in, uh, even in grass and, um, yeah, it, like I, I have, uh, five kids and the youngest is a year old and, I mean, the way that like the dogs or like a dragonfly just makes her whole face light up. And to, to call this like, you know, we have this little uh, chunk of backyard in a suburban area. Nature is like, it feels desecrated, but she finds the joy in it. Right. Um, and that that's something uh, that and, and this, I think, uh, is, is where I wanted what I wanted to ask you about next. Is that that training aspect that that development is that I want to nurture that wonder I want to nurture that awe, um, but that's where you talk about the development of the ego because that's where we see the the loss of the the child is in the formation of that identity. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, kids kids are just <clears throat> spontaneously in awe, in wonderment, uh, in delight. Um, you know, mixed in with temper tantrums and all sorts of stuff, right? right? Yeah, but, yeah, right, right. Um, I did not have to teach my kids to um, hit other kids, right? That was <laughs> I did not have to teach them that, yeah. But I think you're right, I think that does get cultured out of us that, uh, and with, with, uh, uh, you know. You know, misguided educational systems, and and uh, uh, you know, it, it it gets cultured out of us. Uh, and one of the things that gets cultured into us is some fantasy that we really are separate from the rest of nature. And I think that partly has to do with the development of uh, a certain kind of ego-centered self, on the one hand, and inseparably or intertwined with this. Uh, uh, a cultural uh, ethos and worldview that emerged in the modern era that that um, celebrated our supposed independence and autonomy from the rest of nature, our capacity, as Descartes said, to be masters and controllers, masters and possessors. I think he said of uh, of nature. You know, completely, you know, misguided and 
I mean, there's there's ways we can back up and understand where this desire comes from, but um, because nature's nature's not all sweetness and light, of course, it's fierce and dangerous, and so I understand sort of wish to master and control nature, but what hubris, right? <laughs> As if we could control this great wild, you know, uh, reality. So, um, yeah. So I when I when I was trying to understand if. It, as I see it, separation is is the sort of core malady from which springs all evil, all sin, all you know destructiveness. Uh, uh, how does this separation arise? And I think it arises partly by way of our um, psychosocial development, looking at psychological theory, and it arises also, these two are intertwined from cultural influences that valorize a, a kind of independence that's ultimately illusory, but practically uh, destructive. I remember someone talking about the climate crisis and making the point that the planet is not scared of humans and what humans are doing. We, we are going to be the ones who will reap uh, the, the, you know, and the animals as well, but like the earth is not going to be de destroyed by what we're doing, right? Like the, the planet itself. Um, it's bigger than us. And so uh, to be clear about the, the ramifications of what we're doing and why it's, um, yeah, this isn't to, to downplay it, but also it's, I think, more to illustrate how big the systems in play are, right? Like, uh, if, if that makes sense. It does make sense, and it's heartening in one way. I mean, just to appreciate the infinite depth and um, intelligence and beauty of this whole earth uh, or even whole cosmos, but we'll bring it down to earth. Uh, I think, yeah, that's gonna continue unfolding whether or not we find a way to stay around as a species or not. At the same time, and this is what's so anguishing, uh, our confusion is leading to the extinction of countless species and the extirpation of countless species and the destruction of um, habitat and the diminishment of biodiversity um, and the diminishment of human existence because, and, and you know, our kids are suffering from this and we're suffering from it because, you know, the all, all the, four-legged ones and the winged ones and the leafed ones and the scaly ones and the blowing and flowing and airy ones. Th these have been our relational partners throughout the whole history of humankind. Our day-to-day -day relational partners with whom we've had this intimate rapport. Uh, and when we extinguish these and when we withdraw into our human-built world, screen-focused world, uh, and and lose aware contact with the rest of nature, we're losing something at the heart of being human. So I am heartened that the earth itself is, I think, infinitely resilient. Um, and I'm really heartbroken, heart-opened in response to the suffering that we're wreaking on this 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 wild and sacred earth. I, when you first spoke, I uh, misunderstood when you said we live in the screen world, part of that's living in, um, you know, this world of screens, uh, part of that's living in Florida. And so everybody's porch is screened in. Um, and so I immediately thought of the screens there. But what I love is the, the ambivalence of that. Because um, obviously in our culture, we, when we think of screens now, we think of uh, phones, you know, the think of iPads and computers, even what we're doing right now. And what's interesting is about even the way, what we're like doing right now, which yeah, yeah, we have the we have these portals that we think of this this different way of accessing. But another an interesting thing about the word screen is it's another way of keeping things out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up in the South. You're in Florida. I grew up in North Carolina, <laughs> and sitting outside in the summer screen porches were nice because you didn't get so many mosquito bites. You know, right. I, I get that. Like I say, Nate, you know, nature can be fierce and, you know, mosquitoes are just being mosquitoes. 
Um, uh, but I think there is a deeper um, uh, tendency that's been enculturated to screen ourselves from close intimate contact with the rest of nature. And that's to our detriment, and it's also to the detriment of, of all of these other beings and presences uh, whose life, whose very existence is being threatened because of our confusion. I'd like to return to something you mentioned earlier, that you're trying to uh, rekindle or keep alive the, the wonder and the inspiration and not rely on these external factors um, or these external standards like the Ten Commandments, like the Buddhist precepts. What role do you see for, for these laws or these uh, training techniques? In um, uh, Should we, uh, what's, the, what's the point of setting these up as a culture? Or is there no, is there nothing positive about them? I, I don't think you're going to say that, but Obviously, that's, you know, the other side of the question. Yeah, my main point is that I think when we can tune into our direct, intimate experience, ethical actions flow quite naturally. I, I, I think, I think it's a, I, I think it's um it's a misguided notion to think that we're just like intrinsically, you know, destructive and aggressive and, and greedy creatures. Um, uh, so I think uh, I, I, my sense is that when, when we attune to our own direct experience, uh, that's the best ethical guideline. But of course, uh, External ethical guidelines are helpful within, you know, um, in, in a relative way. Um, you know, it's really helpful to agree that we're going to drive on the right-hand side of the road. Um, <laughs> even though in England yeah. they drive on the left, it's completely arbitrary. But we agree because if people didn't have that agreement, you know, we'd have a lot of car crashes. Um, so having certain guidelines is, is, is helpful. Um, I think there's also an element where the the, the sort of religious um, uh, ethical pointers uh, are really pointing out the deeper nature of how things always already are, um, and it can remind us to tune into those um, uh, and embody them and actualize them. Um, uh, you know, thou shalt not kill, you know, it could be taken as a, you know, external commandment from somewhere else, a religious authority or God or whatever. Um, but it could be pointing to the reality that if you meet face to face with another person and you open to your direct experience, you're not going to want to kill them. You're going to want to care for them. That's, that's the way we are. I think that's actually the way we are. Um, and so I think these, um, these external um, sort of uh, prescriptions are, are actually reminding us of the deeper nature of things uh, that then we can embody and, and live up to relationally. Yeah, uh, you know, even as you talk about these powerfully charged words, there's uh, echoes in what you're saying, you know, uh, into uh, Galatians where it says, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness. Against such, there is no law, right? Like when you are walking in the spirit, as it says, you know, <laughs> when you're walking this way, it's like you don't need the precepts, right? Because like I mean, you don't have to make laws against someone being kind, um, or well, if you are, the law is wrong, and so that that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, how do you mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. how do you appropriate uh, Christian mysticism in your book? Can you talk about that chapter? 
Sure. Um, I grew up Presbyterian in North Carolina. My family went to church up until we I was like a, I don't know, early teenager. And then we sort of drifted away for various reasons. Um, I came back to spirituality by way of psychology, getting interested in the psychology of consciousness. I'm a you know, clinical psychologist. And I was, you know, under I was studying also undergrad um, psychology, although I thought I was going to teach tennis. So I didn't major in psychology as an undergrad. <laughs> um, but I got interested in consciousness and that led me to meditation and the most accessible forms of meditation back then, um, uh, early 80s, uh, were Asian, particularly Buddhist. Um, and I got very involved in practicing uh, Buddhist meditation, uh, first with Vipassana meditation and then Zen. And I've been working with a Zen teacher for 24 years. Uh, um, but in the course of doing that meditation, those doing that Buddhist practice, and it's not only meditative practice, but it's you know bringing meditative sensibilities into your everyday life. It's not a matter of having special experiences on a cushion. It's a matter of living with awareness and compassion, love, justice. So in the, in the course of doing that, um, I rediscovered my root spiritual tradition um, uh, freshly. And I started reading the Christian mystics. And I thought, oh my, they never showed me this stuff in Sunday school. It's <laughs> <laughs> no. incredible. This, is this my root tradition? Wow. And I was just astonished and inspired and delighted. Um, and, um, and so, you know, each tradition has its own way of articulating and, and fostering uh, a, a life of, that's fully alive, that's engaged, that's, that's, that's living well, that's loving well. Uh, and, Sometimes the, the Christian tradition touches me in ways that the Buddhist tradition doesn't. Um, so, for, and, and I also know that um, in the United States, at least, you know, there's, there, there's way more people that have some familiarity with Christianity than Buddhism, even though Buddhism is growing and um, uh, touching many people. But um, sometimes, it depends on who I'm talking with also, you know, it's, it's, it's easier, clearer for me to, to use Christian language. Um, but it's not just that practical aspect. It re really is. I can see things differently by way of Christian language and Christian practice. Um, so let, let me try to give an example. Um, okay. Um, well, actually, let me give an example that uses both Christian language and Buddhist language and see, see get, this is, this is how it works for me. Sure. So, um, there's a famous, there's a famous Zen, uh, story where, uh, a Zen practitioner said, you know, before I practiced Zen, um, I just saw mountains as mountains and rivers as rivers. But after, after my practice deepened, then I didn't see mountains and I didn't see rivers anymore. But when I got to the heart of the matter and really clarified what I was seeing, it was mountains and rivers. <laughs> so, <laughs> so one way that I read this is you know, we have, we, you know, we sort of see things in a habitual conventional way. There's the mountains over there, like separate objects, separate things over there, and me over here uh, in this sort of conventional self-world separation, subject-object separation. That's a conventional way to see things, okay? Um, then by way of contemplative practice, those supposed separations start to dissolve or be seen through, seen as illusory in the first place. There's, there's never really any severance in the first place. So, you know, there's sort of like this, ah, not separate anymore. 
but that doesn't remove me to some sort of um you know like spiritual realm somewhere other uh, in some other place in the end it grounds me to relate to mountains rivers you know, trees other people in a different way right so the third is you know re-engaging with this world but but seeing seeing it not as a sub separate from me but as this precious sacred uh you know uh, manifestation of this great mystery right so that's the that's the first side now you ask about christian mysticism so saint john of the cross the um great spanish mystic um has uh, a, a, a a poem called um the spiritual canticle i think i'm remembering the the, the, the right poem he's got a lot of poems uh, but this is a love poem to God, and identically, it's a love poem to the the natural world. And he has this um, uh, this part part. Of, he he's he does things in an interesting way. He writes a poem, and then he shares it with with monks and nuns, and they say, "Whoa, John, this is wonderful. Can you can you explain it to us?" You know, and then he writes, and then he writes a commentary on his poem. Okay, so ah. I, I could find the poem, but I'll just do it from from memory. He says something like, um, uh, "The the mountains, the rivers, the love stirred breezes. These are what my beloved is to me, and beloved is his name for God, right? So." mountains rivers love stirring breezes these are what my beloved is to me in other words you know mountains rivers the breezes these are god <sighs> okay so if i put myself in saint john's shoes and kind of echoing that first zen story which i think is the same experience it's just languaged in a different tradition i see okay i look out at the mountains I just see mountains, you know, separate objects over there, right? I do contemplative prayer, Christian contemplative prayer, for example. And through a contemplative eye, I don't see mountains separate from me. I see God. Oh, wow. Not as some abstract idea, but I'm grounded. And then the third step is, yeah, I relate to this mountain as a sacred presence, a sacred presencing. Okay. Uh, this is completely consistent with, with the teachings of Christ. You know, um, Christ has this... Um, uh, beautiful teaching in the the, the Gospel of Thomas uh, from from um, the so-called Gnostic Gospels, but uh, supposedly authentic sayings of Christ. Uh, he says, like you know, split a piece of wood, you will find me there. Lift up a stone, you will find me there. Right, and when he says me, he's not referring to me. Th th this actually helped me when I was reading. Uh, the Gospels, um, when when Christ when it says Christ said or Jesus said, uh, I think it's important to remember that it's not referring just to him as as a skin bodied historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, but also it's referring to God, right? So when when Christ says. Uh, Cleave a piece of wood, you'll find me there. Split, uh, uh, lift up a stone, you will find me there. He's saying, cleave a piece of wood, you'll find God there. Lift up a stone, you'll find God there. Because, because you know, the kingdom of heaven is among us, within us, everywhere. Right? And so if I, if I look at a mountain and I see the presencing of God, I'm surely not going to enact mountain range annihilation coal mining on that mountain. Wiping out the whole mountain because I want to make money getting that coal underneath. 
I'm going to relate to that mountain in a very different way. I think if you allow me, because my, my next question is, you know, I want, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, can you articulate that final chapter about uh, love is our nature, love is our calling, love is our path, and love is our fruition? Um, and that seems like the, the natural outflowing of even what, you, what you're speaking about. Yes. Yeah, I think that's really the crucial, the crucial aspect. Um, um, see, the you know the these are these are just my best linguistic gestures to put something you know out there that touches people that's really ineffable. I think. Um, uh, but those things that are unsayable really call to be said in the right context with the right person. That's what I tried to do with this with this book. Um, let me try to do it as concisely as I can. So, love is our nature, uh, our calling. Uh, our path and our fruition. Um, love is one of the classic names for that great unnameable. Love is one of the classic names for God. Uh, uh, and according to the tr Christian tradition, God is is our deepest nature. You know. Uh, Christ says, I and God are one. Uh, and then he says, praise, you know, may they all be one as, as I am with you. Uh, so Christ is saying, look, you know, that union, that deep identity with God, it's not limited to me. I realized it. I woke up to it. I see it, but it's not limited to me. This is our human birthright. May they all be one. Right? You know, Christ, Christ says, you know, I am the vine and you are the branches. When he says I, he means God. God is the vine and we are the branches. So what's the relationship between a, a branch and the vine? A, a branch is how the vine is showing up over here. And this other branch is the vine showing up differently over here. You know, the, there's no separation. We are, you know, a form of that great, let's say, vine, okay? We are a form of God. And if God is love, our deepest nature is love. Always, even if we don't recognize it. Another way to say it in Christian terms, you know, God is loving us into being right here and now. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, we haven't backed up and said this, PJ, but you've, re you've read the book. But, but when I say God, I'm certainly not talking about some man, you know, up in the clouds with a beard that's, you know, giving us rewards and punishment, catching us when we're naughty and nice, that's like Santa Claus, right? <laughs> that's that's not what I mean by God. You know, I, I, I don't I don't really know what I mean, but 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 I, I'm trying to gesture towards some great all encompassing, all permeating mystery. Right. So our deepest nature is love. Um but not love in an abstract way. We're called to embody love, actualize love in the nitty gritty um, circumstances of our daily lives. You know, what's the greatest commandment of all, Christ says? You know, to love that God is one, 
and you know, if God is one, we're not separate from God. There's only one. <laughs> without a second, as the Hindu tradition says, one without a second. God is one, and then we love and equal uh, love our neighbor. Love God with all your heart and mind and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. So we are love, but we're called to actualize that love in relation with our neighbors. And those neighbors aren't just two-legged ones. They're, they're the, whole, the whole rest of this sacred earth community. Okay? So we're called to do that. Well, how, how, do we, how do we do that? Well, we follow a path of doing our best to be loving or to be love itself day by day by day. And when we do that, for the moment, that's the fruit. That's the fruition. That's, that's what, I think that's really what we're here for. That, that's what, that's what we're, we're called to do. We have to do it even, you know, that we're confused and frightened and fallible. You know, we, we offer it the best we can. Uh, and sometimes there's that fruit. Um, and all of these are inseparable, I think. Well, if you can't, <laughs> ending on lo like work better at loving each other, I, I don't think you can, I don't think anyone can disagree with that. And I don't think we can, th I can think of a better way to end it. Um, uh, if you could give us uh, 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 one way that you would encourage people to, to love each other, um, uh, whether the, they're two-legged neighbors or four-legged neighbors or crawling neighbors, what's one way that you would encourage people to love each other uh, this week after listening to this episode? Yeah, my invitation would be the invitation I, I give myself every, every day. It's just to, to show up as present, open, and awake as I can in, in, in my encounters, feeling grateful for this life that we're given freely, you know, by no accomplishment of our own. Um, you know, we just celebrated Thanksgiving, but, you know, every, every day can be a day of Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, when we're awake, uh, it's very clear that we're not separate from each other. Um, so I would say just, you know, like step, since we're, we're, we're talking about Love not just for other humans, which is crucially important, of course, but love and engaged love, not just abstract love, but engaged practical love for the rest of nature. You know, step outside and let yourself be called by some aspect of the natural world. Uh, let yourself appreciate that, be in wonder, be in awe. And notice, notice what's speaking to you. Um, and, and usually when we do this, some sense of, of appreciation or gratitude wells up. And that gratitude can pour out and spill over, you know, as care and love. Uh, maybe in the moment, maybe later in the day. Um, you know, there's no, there's no big secret here. It's just, it's just an ongoing, the whole, the whole world is our Zendo. The whole world is our meditation hall. Uh, uh, you know, we bring our contemplative life into our everyday engagements. And when, when we're tuned in, we naturally respond with care. Um, I don't think we have to force ourselves to do it. I think it's just, uh, just opening again and again, letting letting go of our fears and habits and defenses and you know busyness. You know, I think really pausing. That, I mean, if I could say anything, like just pause, pause, look look deeply, see deeply. When we do that, love flows naturally. Uh, Doctor Adams will. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. 
It's it's a privilege. It's a privilege. Uh, I, I I was really I'm grateful for the kinds of invitations, for the kinds of questions you posed, for the points you highlighted. You know, each of those, BJ, we could have paused and gone, you know, for for a long, long time. There's a lot of things that you shared that I'll keep pondering. And uh, uh, so, anyway, I hope, uh, yeah, I hope this touches people in some way. And I'm glad you gave us the opportunity. You, you've touched me, I have to say. 